You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, last fall, we got to work through the book of Leviticus together. And it was in that book we got to see the tabernacle in action for the very first time. If you recall, that tabernacle with its outer court, its inner holy place, its innermost, most holy place, served as the dwelling place of God amidst his people. It was essentially a transportable tent-like structure. And that really fit where the Israelites were at that season because they were a people on the move. They had rescued out of Egypt, they would be on the move in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Every time the Lord told them to stop, they could erect the tabernacle, put it up in the middle of the center of the people. When the Lord said it was time to move, they could take it down and carry it with them. Well, if we could grab hold on that moment in time, and that's fast forward from it quite a bit, we would see a later time when Israel had finally entered into the promised land, entered into the land of Canaan and taken up ownership of that land. And during that time, we would see the tabernacle be replaced by a temple. A temple that would mirror the tabernacle, whether it's outer court and inner holy place and innermost most holy place, but it would be far more permanent. It takes seven years to build this temple, tens of thousands of laborers to build it. It featured detailed hand-carved images of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and all of it, all of it was overlaid with gold. On the day of its dedication, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep would be sacrificed. Following the prayer, hear this in 2 Chronicles 7. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people saw the fire come down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the temple. That's the temple story. At least part of it. Psalm 74 introduces us to another chapter of that temple story. A chapter that would occur some hundreds of years after this initial dedication of the temple. A story of fire. Not fire come down from heaven. But fire produced by the hand of an enemy. A story of consuming fire. Not consuming sacrifices in front of the temple, but consuming the temple itself. A story where the reason the priest couldn't enter the temple is not because the glory of the Lord was there, but the temple no longer stood. A story of Israelite faces bowed to the ground, not in glad-hearted worship, but mourning. A story not to the tune of, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, but 
to the tune of, oh God, why do you cast us off forever? It's a different sounding story, right? A story of darkness, a story of shattered stone and smoldering cedar, of axes and hatchets and hammers swung by an enemy. A story with a lingering smell, not of burnt sacrifice, but of the very burning of the place of God. Psalm 74, verses 3 to 7, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. Some translations have it everlasting ruins or even imperable ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They are like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. They're in the temple. All its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. What happens to the engraving of a palm tree overladen with gold when met by an enemy's hammer? What do hand-carved images of open flowers appear to be when hacked to pieces and thrown to the ground? What does a cherubim look like when covered in ashes? It looks like the faces of a people who wonder if their God has forgotten them. That's what it looks like. It looks like the faces of a people who feel, who think, who wonder... Our God has left us. Verse 1, oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Now, if you're the psalmist in all this, you've seen the temple burnt to the ground. If you're the psalmist, you're in all of this, you're seeing it, you're feeling it, you're experiencing it, you're part of this people. What might you say? What questions might you ask? What might you wonder? For the psalmist, assessing all of this, he's got one main driving question. And it's this. How long will the destruction last? How long will the destruction last? See it in verse 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off Forever. See in verse 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Still verse 10. Is the enemy to revile your name forever? He's asking because as we see in verse 9, there's no longer any prophet. Look left, look right. There are no prophets here. No one here to give us a word from the Lord. No one to tell us what's going on. No one to give us a sense of hope for the future. There are no prophets around. And the temple is in ashes. So that's his main driving question. How long? And what we're going to see kind of running alongside this main driving question, kind of going parallel to it, are three things that the psalmist knows about the God to whom he's questioning. 
three things the psalmist knows about his God that are going to kind of run alongside to this main question of, Lord, how long? Here's the three. The psalmist knows God is powerful. The psalmist knows that this God has made promises. And the psalmist knows this God is devoted to the praise of his own name. So again, the psalmist knows God is powerful. He knows God's made promises. He knows God is devoted to the praise of his own name. So first, he's powerful, and we begin to see this in verse 12, where things really take a sharp turn from the more discouraging words of verses 1 through 11. Here, beginning with verse 12, he says, Yet God my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. As it, it's as if he's just picking up his eyes here. Take his, his glance and focus off the rubble, in front of him, and into the reality of the God above and around him. It is not an escape from reality. It's an escape to a deeper reality. It's as if the psalmist is looking to his God to say, hey, remind me what's real here. What's real is that God is still powerful. He says, yet God my king is from of old. He's contrasting the kings of the peoples, the kings of the enemy nations who are here today and gone tomorrow. Saying, God my king is from of old, eternity past. He says, my king is working salvation in the midst of the earth. The enemy armies have roared in the midst of God's meeting place. My king is working salvation in the midst of the earth. We could summarize, God's dominion is on a far grander scale, and his reign is of a much longer tenure than any other king. Moving into verses 13 to 15 then, things begin to get a bit tricky. It's still about God's power, but what exactly he's saying about God's power is initially a bit hard to Make sense of it's a bit unclear i'll read it verses 13 and 14 you divided the sea by your might you broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water you crushed the heads of leviathan you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness it, okay what what what's going on here the interpretation i find most convincing is this the psalmist is making use of a well-known ancient Near East myth for the purposes of showing how much more powerful his God is compared to the so-called gods of the nations around him. He's plucking up a myth that's well-known in their culture, in their history, and he's taking it over and transposing it on the picture of his God and saying... This is what my God does compared to your own. Here, here, here's, here's how it works. Um, he's connecting the story of this myth to God and his actual uh, rescuing of his people in the Exodus and crushing the head of Pharaoh and his 
mighty army. He's implying, using symbolism, he's implying that Pharaoh was that mighty sea monster. Pharaoh was that heavy-hitting Leviathan. It's, it's symbolism. Now, hang, hang with me. In the words of one commentator, the thing that the psalmist is trying to do here is this. The psalmist is pointing out what your false god did in the realm of myth, our god did in reality. What your god did in the land of make-believe, our god did in actual time and space. What's the myth here? Just very simple. It's basically a war between two different gods. The false god, Baal, and the false god, Yom, who's kind of over the sea and over all the sea creatures in the sea. So their myth runs along the lines of Baal going at this other god, Yom, and trying to fight for who gets to reign over the whole universe. It's kind of a back and forth. He's transposing that story over God, his rescuing of his people, his conquering of Pharaoh, and saying, for our God, there was no back and forth. For our God, there was no struggle. I'm convinced by this interpretation of symbolism, using this symbolism for two reasons. One is that symbolism is already here in this very psalm. So just as God's people are his sheep, verse 1, God's people are his dove, verse 19. God's enemies are wild beasts, it's still verse 19. So Pharaoh and his army are like this sea monster and Leviathan. Another reason I'm convinced by this interpretation is the specific link between Pharaoh and this sea monster type creature is elsewhere in the Bible. If you were to turn to Ezekiel 32, you would read this. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Say to him, you consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. So God's saying Pharaoh is like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and follow the rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I'll throw my net over you with the host of many peoples. They will haul you up in my dragnet. I will cast you on the ground. On the open field, I will fling you. I will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you. I'll gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. It's graphic, but do you see how it mirrors our psalm? Here, Ezekiel 32 Pharaoh is the dragon in the sea. Psalm 74, Pharaoh is the sea monster, Leviathan. Ezekiel 32, God will gorge the beasts of the earth with him. Psalm 74, God will give him as food to the creatures of the wilderness. So see that connection? Baal took on this god, Yom, and apparently after a while of struggle, he won. For our God, there was no struggle, and he actually did it in time and space. And the people in front of him are the proof of that. So if we were to take this interpretation, verse 13 brings God dividing the sea by his might. That's God splitting the Red Sea at the Exodus. 
you breaking the heads of the sea monsters, that's God closing that Red Sea back up over Pharaoh and his army. Verse 15, you split open springs and brooks. It's God opening the rock and pulling water from the rock for God's people to drink in the wilderness. Verse 15, you dried up ever-flowing streams, potentially referring to the Jordan River, drying that river up so God's people could pass into Canaan. Perhaps you followed that. Perhaps you got lost along the way. Here's what I want you to remember. Here's the big takeaway. God is more powerful than any other so-called God in the universe. That's the point. We might even say God's surpassing power is on display through real historical events. Next part, verses 15 to 16, gets a bit easier. He's still focused on God's power, but now he's reveling in it, reveling in God's power as displayed in the story of creation. He says, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. You hear the creation story in that? We could summarize this whole section, verses 12 to 17, saying this. God's power spans over all locations, over all times, and over all nations. That's what the psalmist is saying. God's power spans over all locations, over all times, and over all nations. So God is powerful. But we might ask, what's his power, what's God's power got to do with this specific people who are sitting in ruins? What's the connection? If God's power is just sort of up there, sort of disconnected from the people in ashes and sackcloth, that's not really much of a cause for hope, is it? So, enter God's promises. God's power and God's promises. This section is quite a bit shorter than the previous one. Verse 20. Have regard for the covenant. The psalmist knows God is not disconnected from him and his people. But rather, God has, of his own will, enjoined himself to this people via a covenant God himself initiated. Clearly, his covenant with Moses had been broken by this time through the people's repeated sin. But God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants, was not dependent upon the people's behavior. And it was in that covenant which God promised to give Abraham children as many as the stars of the sky. Promised to make him into a great nation. Blessed to be a blessing to others. And, hear this, promised to give him a land that his people could call their own. The psalmist is looking at that land. And he sees it burning. He sees it desecrated. He sees it inhabited by enemies, and he says, God, remember your covenant. 
that covenant call down toward the bottom half of that psalm. It connects to the, to the top half of this psalm. Verse 2, he says, remember your congregation. So the, the people he's made this covenant with, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. God, remember the promises you made to us. Do not let those promises fade away. So we got God's power, we got God's promises that he's made to this people. And the third and final place we're going to turn to, the thing that is the cause of the most tension in this entire psalm. Say that one more time. This thing we're about to turn to is the cause of the most tension in this whole psalm. And that is God's devotion toward the praise of his own name. That's it, right there. God's devotion to the praise of his own name and the fact that right now God's name is being profaned. See how the psalmist focuses in on it. We'll look through a few verses here. Verse 4. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. Verse 7. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name. Bring it down to the ground. Verse 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Verse 22, arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Verse 23, do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you. Which goes up continually. The psalmist knows God is devoted to the praise of his name. Right now, his name is not being praised. Why is God's name being profaned? I mean, it's the people who've been defeated, right? It's the people who were conquered. So why is God's name being profaned? What the psalmist is getting at here is that God has put his name upon this people. God has put his name upon that people. And so the plight of that people has an effect upon his name in the world. The people's destruction leads to God's name being derided. Their ruination results in God's name being reviled. Their despair brings scoffing upon God's name. Because again, God has put his name upon this people. Whatever happens to that people now reflects upon God's name. It's a principle evident if you look at the connection between verse 1 and verse 10. See how these two verses work together. Verse 1, verse 10. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Verse 10. Is the enemy to revile your name forever? These two things are conjoined at the hip. 
Why do you cast us off forever? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? That's a problem because he knows God is wholly devoted to the praise of his name. There's nothing more fundamental to God than the love he has for the praise of his own name. Nothing. Nothing more valuable to God. No higher priority to God than the praise of his name. Nothing he is more determined to defend and uphold and protect than the praise of his name. Now, is the God who said, Isaiah 48, how should my name be profaned? Going to now just sit back, hand in the fold of his garment, and let his name be profaned? Is the God who said, Ezekiel 20, he held back his wrath for the sake of his name, lest it be profaned in the sight of the nations? Is that God now going to pour out unending wrath upon his people in the presence of the nations who are right now defiling his name? Is the God who, Psalm 106, saved his people out of Egypt for his name's sake, now going to cast his people off forever to the detriment of his name's sake? The psalmist knows God is wholly, rightly, jealously, passionately devoted to the praise of his name. And he knows that God has thoroughly and irrevocably wrapped his name around this people. The descendants of Abraham. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the label Christian means little Christ? It's a label bestowed upon God's new covenant people. The people who are, as Romans 6 says, of the faith of Abraham and there are, therefore are Abraham's offspring. People who, as Galatians 3 says, by faith are the sons of Abraham. A people who, by faith in Jesus, have God's name. God's very name. The name that he is holy and rightly and jealously and passionately devoted to defending have that very name wrapped around them. Wrapped around you. Now any Christian on any given day might encounter, like this psalmist did, a situation that causes them to feel like God has cast them off. Maybe you sitting right here are feeling like God has forgotten you. He's unconcerned. He's just letting the enemy attack you. He's watching you crumble and doing nothing about it. Have you ever felt that way? Do you realize if you are a Christian, he never sees you apart from his name upon you? He never sees you disconnected or separated from his name? He has fully wrapped his name around you. And that name will forever be wrapped around you. And the God whose name is Jealous will not forsake his name. 
because he won't forsake his name, he will not forsake the bearers of it. Feel the security, my brothers and sisters. This is what the psalmist is pointing to. Will you cast a people off forever who wear your name? The very name that you are so jealous to defend. Feel the security of knowing deep in your bones God's name is upon you. He doesn't throw away his name. He doesn't forsake his name. He doesn't suffer his name to be derided forever. If you have his name upon you, just as sure as God will have his name held high, so as sure the end of your story will be one of victory. It may not feel like victory in this life. It may not feel like victory next year, but if you wear his name, you will end in victory because God loves his name and he loves those who he has put his name upon and he has no plans of revoking that name from you and he has no plans of letting that name be derided forever. He is out for the glory of his name and brothers and sisters, you get to wear it now and forever. Endeavor to see God's name upon you more. Endeavor to see God's name upon other believers more. Would that God would unfurl like a banner over you when you see yourself in the mirror. God's name over me. God's name over my brothers. God's name over my sisters. We open up our eyes to see a reality we don't often recognize. God is holy, rightly, jealously, passionately devoted to the praise of his name. And his name dwells here and dwells in you. It should change the way we think about ourselves. It should change the way we deal with other believers. It should change the way we live in this world. Change the way we think about seasons of discouragement. Friends, God is devoted to the praise of his name. And his name, by faith in Jesus, is upon you. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your name to wear in this world. You have given us your name to wear in heaven. You will not allow your name to be cast off forever, nor will you allow for the people who wear it to be cast off forever. Would you instill in us a deep hope of knowing we wear your name? We need this, Father. Would you give it through Christ, by the Spirit, we pray in all of us right now. Amen.